Create, connect, communicate. Create, connect, communicate. Magical, enigmatical, gift of gab, super, agile, story from the space Come well lit. You know, the thing in the ICRT studio is our chairs have that squeak when you go back, but your chairs don't. No, dude, that's why I changed my chair. If you see oh. the old photos, yeah. I have the, there, that's why there's a blue chair out there for the exact same the, reason. The chair squeakers. I cannot find a chair that like these kind of chairs, yeah, they, they all, all squeak. squeak. <laughs> exactly. We need to do something about this. We need to call the chair gods of... Uh, I don't know, the universe, because seriously, right? Right. Oh, they do. They, Even they ICRT. Do. Yeah. And then today my guest had the chair squeak and I was like, y'all got to sample that squeak in your oh, next shit, song. The, like uh, I have uh, to uh, like, uh, yeah. Squeak, squeak. <laughs> you got, you, it's the only way to like naturally have it come into conversation. That's true. Squeak, squeak. Squeak, squeak. Okay, so that's good. We just keep this distance right there. Mm -hmm. No chair squeaks. I'll try not to. So I'll try not good? to fart. Exactly. I feel like that's the only squeak coming that's out of this chair. <laughs> <laughs> or <laughs> exactly. <laughs> or another squeak. That would be Oh well not we won't even go there. But yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> aren't they sorry this, aren't they called queefs <laughs> exactly exactly <laughs> i was like i hope we don't get another uh <laughs> another squeak not <laughs> and then we'll remix it we're gonna re <laughs> that would be a sample that could be a big hit Oh my God. Is that going to be your next? <laughs> oh, well, you know, if you find some DJ who can, that could be a club banger. You know, there's actually, have you seen like EDM songs? Oh. They'll layer like those drops with like moans. Oh, Because it's actually a good. Uh, it's a good like baseline. Yeah. True. So if you like go on those tutorials and stuff, it'll show. show some of them have that. <laughs> Like they sample their girlfriend or something. Oh, okay. So it probably has been done before. I oh, guess. I'm sure. I'm sure. Musicians are dirty. <laughs> exactly. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Huh. Okay. So, um, yes, we will go deep into the Diplobrat life. All right. Okay. We'll just do that and then save the uh, music stuff for next time. Sounds good. Give you a little intro and then we'll just... We'll just go. Perfect. And then Big Ben Holt will come knocking probably around 8.30. So. Oh, okay. Yeah. So we're good. We can oh, yeah, chill. We got plenty of time. Exactly. And if the bell rings, then we'll have to say goodbye to everyone because Big, Big ben. D Ben Holt will be here. So are you ready, ma'am? I am ready. All right. Let's do this. One and and welcome back to another evening episode of Firelight Chats, where we broadcast the most super natural stories from our space lab studio here in Da'an, Taipei, Taiwan. In today's episode, 
we will lose ourselves to the irresistible inertia of wanderlust, succumbing to gravity, deja vu, nostalgia, and other forces as we travel head and heart first through space and time and unravel a familiar myriad of exotic memoryscapes. Some of us are born into one life, one culture, and maintain that relative sense of monotony over our one lifetime. Others among us, by virtue of the family and situation we're born into, grew up in multiple countries, cultures, languages, and thus have a multitude of experiences upon which to draw, or maybe sing, be, or become. There is a word in the English language to describe a particular subset of these people. It is diplobrat, referring to a child who had a parent working as a diplomat, thus possibly spending a majority of their childhood outside their parents' home country or countries. The word is a lexical blend, a kind of portmanteau of two words. Diplomat, noun, from the ancient Greek, diploma is a person anointed by a state or intergovernmental organization to conduct diplomacy with one or more other states or international organizations. Brat, noun, slang, usually a derogatory or humorous term referring to a child, typically one that is badly behaved, annoying, or spoiled. Though the word can have derogatory connotations, diplobrats themselves might view the word in neutral terms, and it's sometimes even taken or used with a sense of pride. Our special guest for today happens to be one such person, a citizen of Australia, born in Singapore with an Australian diplomat father and a Taiwanese mother who grew up living in six different countries. She is still only two-something decades old, so we've decided to split her episodes into at least two separate, independent ones, much like how she views the major storylines of her life thus far. In this first one, we will reflect back on this diplomat life that she was born into, and a forthcoming episode will focus on the adult life that she is carving out for herself here in Taiwan as a vocalist, musician, entertainer, daytime radio DJ, and an all-around sexy and stressed powerhouse of a woman. Speaking of being sexy and stressed, as Lizzo knows, it's about damn time. So, without further ado, let us jump right into the fire here at the Space Lab and travel the world with our special guest of this episode, sometimes known as DJ Caitlin of ICRT or Kate McGee. Hello, everyone. Hello, hello. Welcome. I feel like I should just quit my radio job after that introduction. Oh, did I take their spot? Yeah, why not? Got I can it. go on Let's vacation. <laughs> Or maybe I can run Firelight Academia. Oh, exactly. With come, no credentials. With no credentials. <laughs> you can come join our team. I'll join yours with no credentials as well. Well, I heard you're hiring interns and I am 20 something. Oh, so maybe I can apply for that internship position. Exactly. Even if you're in your late 20s, you can still be an intern. You know what? We are always learning. It's never too late to begin. So, you know, got to start somewhere. Exactly. Exactly. But we, we cannot talk too much about ICRT because as we uh, hinted at in the beginning, that will be saved for another episode. This is how special 
this lady is sitting across the table from me right now. She needs two episodes from the outset. It's crazy. I'm feeling very honored to have more than one segment here on the Firelight Chats podcast. But as you said, we must go back to the beginning to understand where I am now. Okay, so let's try to figure that out right now. We have a little bit of time, as we mentioned, uh, kind of talking off the air. It might make it onto the air, but our friend, another musician, big Benjamin D. Holt will be coming a little bit later. We'll be going out a night on the town. So we got to get this wrapped up before then. So we will try. We'll try to cover that first, first part of your life. We'll get it done. All Trust right. me. Efficiency is my middle name. Okay, let's do it. So I mentioned from the intro that you were born in Singapore. That is correct. But you are Australian. I am Australian. But you are like living in six countries. That is also correct. Oh my goodness. How are we supposed to figure this all out? Help us. Okay. Well, <laughs> in a way, I almost never figured it out. So I just accepted it. And if anything, I think it's amazing, especially when I learned the term third culture kid. Have you ever heard of that one of before? Of course. We've had a third culture kid on here. Jerry. Shout out to Jerry, a good buddy of mine, a third culture kid. He was our he was our first official third culture kid, but we've had quite a few. So was Jerry, what was his mix of third cultures? What nice. was his third culture? Okay, so he was, he is Taiwanese, but he grew up for a pretty significant time in his life in the United States. And then his kind of later years in college, uh, maybe even in high school, I think he went to an international school in, in Shanghai. So he is a real third culture kid, very Taiwanese, of course, very American growing up, also has a lot of experience in this very international expat area in Shanghai, a metropolis. And now he's back here in Taipei. Wow. So definitely a third culture kid. Exactly. I would say Jerry is more like a traditional third culture kid, but in a way I will still fall under the umbrella of third culture. In one set, I am a third culture kid because my father is Australian, my mom is Taiwanese. So that already, if even if we just grew up in Taiwan or Australia alone, that would make me a third culture kid because the third culture would be an amalgamation of dad's culture and mom's culture together. But just to add some more confusion to that, dad was posted in six different countries. So growing up, I followed him around the world to all these six different countries. So in a way, my third culture is mom's culture, dad's culture, and all these six countries put together. Right. Of all these posts of this Superman of a dad. Pretty much. Who we hope to get on the podcast as well sometime in the future. Oh, absolutely. It would be his honor. Oh, that's awesome. That's awesome. But as you were joking with me before, you're like, I have to go first because if he goes first, how can I follow him? Absolutely. <laughs> I'm just trying to, you know, burn my little <laughs> spark amongst the entire firework that he has created for himself. Okay. So, so what about Singapore? Why were you born in Singapore? Which kind of post was this for your father? So what I usually say when people ask me where I was born, I go, I was born in Singapore. And people go, why? Mm. I was like, well, my mom is Taiwanese. My dad's Australian. Singapore is exactly right in the middle. Oh, that's you know, I was like, it's a convenient place for both families to meet. And most people buy it and go, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sounds so logical. But in reality, my father, he was working for the Department of Foreign Affairs, for the Australian Department of Foreign Affairs. And his second posting is actually to Singapore. Second posting. Yes. Okay. And 
And that was just where I was conceived and where I was born. I feel like if his second posting was in Paris, I'd be born in Paris. Yeah. If he didn't have a posting, I'd be born in Australia. So, But Singapore is just very convenient, especially when I don't feel like explaining myself. I'm just like, yeah, geographically halfway the hospital. <laughs> <laughs> but you can't get Singaporean citizenship. You don't I have cannot. It. Okay. It's a shame because I would love to have Singaporean citizenship. Mm. Every time I visit Singapore, I really like the city, the country. I like the people from Singapore. I love the food. You know, I think I would do Singapore, you know, some justice being mm. part of their, as a citizen. But, you know, it's okay not getting the citizenship. And I also love the countries I'm from. So I'm not going to complain that I don't have Singaporean citizenship. Exactly. Singapore is a amalgamation of so many different cultures, right? It's a tiny little place, but it's super diverse. Yeah. And I love how it's just like a hub of Asia. Yeah. So there's always people coming in and out. I mean, think about Taylor Swift. The only place she's performing in Asia is Singapore. Oh, is that right? Yeah. Oh, that's crazy. I know. No Japan, you know, no Korea, no China, no Hong Kong, no Taiwan. That's crazy. Singapore is like one of her stadiums in Europe. Literally, <laughs> literally. <laughs> I can't even imagine that. That's so crazy. Well, honestly, Taylor Swift is so popular that she knows that I'm just going to set up shop in Singapore for a week. Everyone around Asia is going to yeah. come. Yeah. Like if I got tickets, I mean, of course I didn't, but if I ever got tickets, I would consider doing, you know, a holiday in Singapore mm. just to see Taylor Swift. Not a bad idea. <laughs> So you were born there until what age? I was living there until the age of two. So I was there okay. for just two years. So I don't really, I, I mean, yes, I do in a way connect with Singaporeans just because I feel like being someone that's mixed race of an Asian background, I do connect with them, but I also wouldn't consider myself that influenced by Singaporeans right. purely because of the age that I live there. Exactly. So what are your best memories as a... Oh, <laughs> you know, a driving a car. Exactly. <laughs> what are your fondest memories from this time? How far can you dig deep into your subconscious? <laughs> well, I was told by my dad that one of his fondest memories of me in Singapore was me grabbing curry off my auntie's plate at one of those like local sort of like food court areas. Like and a street hawker. Yeah. It's very Singaporean. Just, you know, I was in my high chair grabbing the curry, eating it, and then screaming out, spicy! <laughs> <laughs> really? Yeah. Oh, so you, okay, so that's something you could speak by yes. the time you were... Yes. Between one and two, maybe. Yes. I was told by my parents that I spoke very early, like I was an early speaker. Yeah. And it's not a surprise. <laughs> <laughs> so what was your first word? I don't was actually it spicy? know. Maybe. That, might, that makes a lot of sense. <laughs> it's all because of Singapore. Now we know. Now we know. Now we know why you're so spicy. Oh, yes. That's <laughs> why I got red hair. <laughs> exactly. But it seems like you are quite familiar with Singapore. So you've visited since then. Yeah. I mean, Singapore, like I said, is a hub. And being from Australia and now being based in Taiwan, you know, especially before COVID, I would always do layovers in Singapore. Mm. Um, I'm also a jazz musician, as we previously mentioned. And mm. a lot of the jazz culture is jamming. So, you know, going to a location, jamming with local musicians. So I used to do that quite a lot in Singapore because I went to a like a youth jazz camp there. So I met a lot of local Singaporean musicians. So whenever I could lay over or whatever, I would just stay, hang out and jam with these musicians that take me to all those local spots and mm. then like a day later fly to Australia. Ooh, nice. Yeah. Okay. 
So what are your favorite places in Singapore? My favorite places? Or things or foods. I have a favorite food. You have a favorite food? What have is you it? tried chicken martabak? No, what's that? Oh, how dare you? I know, I'm fake Singaporean. I told <laughs> you already. So there's this place that's very famous in Singapore called Zamzam. Zamzam restaurant. It's a Islamic food place. Um, so it's all halal. And they serve this thing called chicken murtabak, which is common, I think, in the Arab world and Southeast Asia as well. It's a pan fried dough or roti filled with minced meat. But this one is chicken. So you can have a beef murtabak. You can have a chicken murtabak. The place is like jam packed. It's super crowded. Every single time I go there, I have it. It's kind of like a like a chicken quesadilla if you know mexican food spanish food oh man i'm getting hungry already come oh, on ben we're ready for you exactly. come on through <laughs> as soon as ben comes we are flying to singapore to get some chicken murtabak <laughs> it's a perfect like late night food too so oh even better yeah exactly that's what i love about singaporean food it's like an amalgamation of all these different like the best of the best of whatever's around them <laughs> for sure like country-wise exactly there's a lot of like chinese culture and a lot of indian culture malaysian as malaysian well malaysian culture yeah it's crazy a bit of indonesian True. and all the different types of chinese cultures too like hong kongese hainanese hokkien right. you know like all of them. Exactly. So they got the best of the best. I know. I was watching a Singaporean movie. At first, I was like, oh my goodness, this is, is this Taiwan? This is crazy. It was basically Taiyu, you know? And my Taiwanese friend is like, that's crazy. That's that's Taiwanese. But that's what they speak. It's Hokkien. That is insane. Who would, cool. who would expect that? Mm-hmm. But that's almost kind of like my life, you know? It's an amalgamation of so many different cultures. And in a way, it can be confusing, but it can be quite positive if you see the beauty that comes out of, you know, people coming together and, you know, sharing the bits of their best culture. Exactly. So do you know where your father's first posting was before Singapore? You said that was his second. His first one was Beijing. Oh. But before Beijing, he was technically posted not as a diplomat, but as a language student to Taiwan. So he first came to Taiwan in 1989 to learn Mandarin. And that's where he met my mom. Whoa, that's interesting. Yeah. Especially because 1989 is a very important year historically as well. Definitely. In Beijing, which he went to after Taiwan. Right. Oh, I okay. I need with to talk his to Taiwanese wife. <laughs> with his Taiwanese wife. Whoa. Okay, we need to get you on, sir, Mister McGee. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, he got a lot of stories. I I'll, know. I'll keep let him share them. Exactly. Wow. 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 Okay. So, did you hear any stories from about Beijing that kind of you know stick in your head? So your parents actually lived there as kind of newlyweds. Well, I remember my mom saying that when they were living in Beijing, everything was like monitored. You know, they were all forced, mm. all the diplomats were forced to like live in certain apartment blocks. And she just said everything she could tell was like bugged, mic'd, cameras. So she said living there was just really, really uncomfortable because everything that she would say to my dad or anything my dad would say, it was documented. And she said there was a lot of people that would try and invite her out, you know, try and schmooze up to her, try to become friends with her purely because they wanted to get intel. Right. So that's what I remember my mom saying to me. And I was like, oh, I am so glad that that is not me. And that I think in a way, China has probably progressed a little bit since then. But Still at the same day, that's where they're coming from. And that's why Taiwanese are a little bit on the, you know, apprehensive side when it comes to dealing with China. 
oh, wow. So it could have been that you were born in Beijing instead of Singapore. It could have been. Right. It would have been a different life. It would have been a different life. I would have been a different girl. <laughs> That's very Or not possible. a girl at all. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, they waited. They waited. They waited till Singapore and just let you free. I also feel like maybe back in the early 90s, I don't think the medical system in China would have been that good as well. Mm, do you think they had that in mind and they were kind of just, oh, let's not do this here. Let's be. I don't know. I think partly because, well, China is maybe not the most romantic country to begin with. Secondly, I'd say also the medical system. And maybe thirdly, I mean, every couple... I think generally speaking has a few years of just being themselves mm. before they have kids, unless they've been together for like a decade. Right. Yeah. Right. But they had just met in Taiwan. So yeah. Okay. Yeah. And they, they were friends and then they started dating. So yeah. Like they wanted some hangout time. First. I see. Yeah. That's very important. Definitely. Okay. So after two years old, Singapore, what happened next? Oh, so after Singapore, we went back to Australia and dad stopped being a diplomat for about two years to work in politics. Ooh, okay. So he started working in state politics and he was a chief of staff for one of the politicians in the state of Victoria, who you might know is the state that has Melbourne in it. So mm. we were living in Melbourne for about two years. Okay. And I don't really remember too much about Melbourne, except that I started preschool there. Oh. You know, I remember like being at home and mom trying to teach me Chinese. I think that I also remember that. You remember um, that? I do. Okay. I don't know why I remember that. Maybe it's because I was like, oh, what is mom saying? <laughs> <laughs> oh, really? So like up until then in Singapore, you're basically speaking English. Yeah. Well, I mean, Singapore is an English speaking country. Mom and dad speak fluent English. I mean, we were posted there as Australians. Mm. There wouldn't really be any need to speak Mandarin. And I think... Probably from a parenting point of view, it's better to just, you know, have your child speak, you know, a language perfectly first and then introduce another language. Yes, exactly. Otherwise, there's something called subtractive bilingualism. What's Do you that know about mean? that? I actually met someone like this. So it was a Japanese woman when I was working in Japan who lived abroad in the United States when she was in high school. So she's Japanese. Her family moved to the States. She went to high school in the States, returned to Japan. But during that high school time in the US, she only spoke English and kind of forgot her Japanese a bit. But when she came back to Japan, she had neither language kind of cemented and she would get frustrated all the time because she could never fully complete, I don't want to say a thought, obviously, but just, you know, when she's speaking about something in depth, she would reach her limit in both languages and kind of get really frustrated. They call that subtractive bilingualism. So what do you do when you're in a circumstance like this? Do you just take more language classes? Yeah, it's, you're in trouble. <laughs> oh, so not even you can go and fix that for exactly. her? Exactly. Well, yeah, they can. she can come to me. It's going to be a little expensive, but... <laughs> yeah, Kane will help. fix her out. Exactly. We can work on it. But luckily for you... Thanks, mom and dad. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So Melbourne, not too many memories. What happened after four, right? So yeah. only two more years. We moved to Canberra, which is the capital city of Australia. Mm. So obviously that politician lost his seat in the election. So dad went back to being a diplomat. And the Department of Foreign Affairs is based in the capital of Australia, which is called Canberra. And that's where I tell everyone I'm from. Because A, legally, that's where my registered address is. <laughs> B... 
I feel like it's one of those cities outside of Taipei where I know everything because it's such a small city. So like I know where all the suburbs are. I know kind of like what the feel of the city is like. I've lived there long enough for people to be like, yeah, you're from Canberra. Mm. Um, And also I think when I'm living in Taiwan, to say I'm from Taipei is a bit weird. And also Canberra is a multinational sort of city as far as Australia goes, purely because a lot of people there are diplomats, mm. whether they are posted to you know, Canberra as from another country, or they are diplomats themselves. And then those who aren't, you know, either of those, they're born and raised in Canberra. They know that it's quite international. And a lot of people move from other cities in Australia to work in Canberra because it is the national capital. So it's got, you know, the National Institute of Sport all the way to like the treasury that look after the economics of our country. So People are from all around Australia. So there really isn't like a solid identity that comes with Canberra. It is kind of multicultural, multi-Australian in a way. So I feel like for me, Sam from Canberra is a pretty good, accurate representation of who I am. Mm, So Canberra is like the political capital, while Sydney would be maybe the cultural capital. Sydney, I would say, is like the financial capital. And then Melbourne would be like the cultural capital. I see. Yeah. Okay, okay. So Canberra... Canberra, Canberra, (laughs) Canberra Canberra is Canberra, (laughs) kind of like Washington, D.C. in the States then. Yeah, I would say that's probably like the closest U.S. equivalent. It's a government city. There's national bodies for everything. And like I said, people come from all over the country. Maybe they grew up in Adelaide, but then they get a job in the treasury, Mm. you know, being an economist. So they come there and set up their life. And maybe their kids might be Canberrans, but uh, they themselves come from Adelaide. So how many years did you spend here? Well, Canberra, I was there from the age of five to six, so one year, but that was the one city that we'd always consistently move back after each posting. And outside of that, that's also the place where I did university. It's where my parents retired and have ended up residing in. Mm. So Canberra. So whenever I go visit them these days, they're all in Canberra. And uh, every time we would go on posting, like halfway through the post, we would come back to Canberra. Um, that's part of like the requirement is that the diplomat halfway through the posting will come back to Canberra, report how the posting's going. And then also the family come along to kind of, you know, reacquaint with the Australian culture before they go back again for the second half. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. So after another year, he went for his third posting. Yes, he did. And he got posted to Moscow. To Moscow. Okay. Yes. <laughs> wow. So you were around what age at this time? Six. Six years old. And we left when I was eight. So how was that? Do you remember? Do you recall a lot from this time period? It was really, I don't know if I'm allowed to swear on your podcast. Oh, you can swear your ass off. It's really fucking cold. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. Really? Yes. So were you drinking vodka at five years old? Oh, clearly. That's why I'm so (laughs) fucked up right now. (laughs) Yeah. So you remember that. You remember it being cold. It's it's harsh. It's a harsh life there. And I think living there at the age of six is like the best time to go there because when you're six, you don't really understand the 
the hardships of life. You know, you don't really understand why the Russian people are so bitter, why life there kind of sucks. All you know is that it's cold. People aren't very friendly. But then there's the beauty that comes with Russia and that has come with the suffering of its people, which is, you know, they really delve into art, whether it's painting or the handicrafts or the dolls or the, the cathedrals. Matryoshka or dolls. Yeah, or even the symphonies or the ballet, you know. All of that came out, I think, in my opinion, through the suffering of Russian people. And sometimes when you suffer, that's when the most beauty that comes out or you, you rely on the music or the creativity to get you through it. So as a six-year-old, I am exposed to all of that. And I feel like that really made me the person, the artist that I am today, just being exposed to all of that so young. But as a six-year-old, I don't know why people are so sad, but I'm like, well, I got a pretty doll, so things are going to be great today. Or, <laughs> oh, I saw a beautiful dancer, like so pretty. You know, that's that's what I would remember, even though I'd be like getting frostbite the day before <laughs> or just like wearing like a thousand layers when I go outside. <laughs> mm, that's amazing. So did you see any kind of memorable performances? I'm picturing like ballet or something, Swan Lake or- Yes, definitely. I did see Swan Lake. And I think one of the highlights of my memories there was going to Tchaikovsky's house. So he is the composer behind Swan Lake mm -hmm. and some other ballets like the Nutcracker. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, I remember going to his house in the summer and he has this like sort of teal colored house. And I'm not one, I- It's I, like a Dasha. Yes, it is a Dasha. Right, And which is I, like a country house. It is a country yes, house. Exactly. And let me just recap here. So I have aphantasia, which means I cannot visualize things. I don't know if you've ever heard that term before, but not many people. I have, but I haven't met someone. I am aphantasia, so I can't really remember images, but I can remember Tchaikovsky's house. Like I don't see it in my mind, but I just remember being there and the impact that it had on me, like the feeling that I had being there. So. For me to remember something when I was so young to this very day and to remember it, it was like a green colored house, you know, and that there was a, a lake outside with the swans <laughs> and Whoa. the piano. I remember all of that, which means it was something so special about that place. Like it's magical. That's crazy. <laughs> so maybe you just need to listen to more Tchaikovsky every day. I think and so. And all these memories will come back. Maybe. So maybe. everything prior to this, these are just words yeah I mean, right these are memories kind of stitched together by by words by ideas right everything by that words you, yeah and feelings words and feelings and also just like for example these matryoshka dolls i still have them they're in my room back in canberra in mm. my parents house like i remember the doll because i see the doll today and okay. I, I still remember things but i can't picture anything like i can't picture where it happened. I know that people with regular sort of minds can like go 360 degrees and right. like th that doesn't exist in my mind. This is amazing. We're like total <laughs> opposites. I'm so jealous. I'm super, super visual. And that's why this is blowing my mind right now. <laughs> you know, I'm a photographer as well. So like, I'm really, really, I wouldn't say I have a photographic memory, but from being a photographer for many years, I think very, very visually and kind of like through the lens of a camera. So as I'm asking you questions about Moscow and and yeah, thinking of Swan Lake, I'm I'm picturing these images. But for you, it's completely opposite. Yeah. 
I just have the feeling and I just remember, I I can't visualize what it was. Like I can remember like, okay, green teal house, but I can't draw the house. I couldn't describe the house apart from the fact of what color it was. Yeah, that's just how my memory works. And in a way I feel kind of happy to be living in 2023 where we have a smartphone and I can take pictures of everything because otherwise I would not be able to function in the society at all. <laughs> so this works for even like kind of things that are pretty recent as well. Oh yeah. Oh wow. Oh okay. yeah. So like, you can't lay down like visual memories. Yeah. I don't know what you were wearing last time I met you. I don't know Wow. if I was supposed to remember that, but, right. <laughs> but some people can remember things like that. Of course. I, well, I remember you were wearing this exact same, this. This thing? Yeah. Oh, I don't oh, remember. Don't re- I don't because even Because I'll tell you why, because you had glasses on as well. We were talking about my recent laser eye surgery. Ah. And you were talking about your glasses, which you were wearing that were kind of tinted a gold or yellow. And, and just same like with the this jacket. Shirt. Yeah. So um, I remember this jacket. I don't remember. I don't even don't re- remember. I don't remember wearing all. the glasses. Wow. This is amazing. But I know I have tinted yellow glasses because they sit on my desk. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I, I believe you. Right. But yeah, I, I can't really remember the color, the detail or the visual aspect what, what do you think it is about Tchaikovsky's house then? I think it was just the feeling that you get walking in there. Like, okay. I think for me as a, you know, young child watching the ballet, knowing the significance this guy wrote the ballet and mm. being so wowed by it. And, and that's also when I started learning music. So I knew that this guy was, you know, a big shot, you know? <laughs> mm-hmm. So then going to see his house and then being told, oh, he wrote Swan Lake on that piano. Mm. Or like, hey, that lake he looked out on his window had swans and there was a swan right there. Oh, wow. For me, it was like, okay, I think that feeling of just going, oh, like this is real. Like I understand why we talk about this or why people care about this dead dude, you know? Right. like. <laughs> Wow. Okay. So of course, again, we'll save most of this for the next episode about music, but you just mentioned that this is when you start to learn music. Yes, it is. Okay. So this is the inception. It is the inception. Musical disease of yours (laughs) is in Russia, in Moscow. Yeah, yeah, it is. Okay. Any other kind of art or, you know, these kind of art forms that you've been mentioning uh, another one that maybe you didn't mention that was in my head was literature, which is very, I mean, Russian literature is very Russian, right? As as you were talking about. So are there any other things from this time period that have kind of stuck with you as, a, as an artist? I wouldn't say anything really stuck with me because apart from music, I can't really visualize. And also at the age of seven or six, reading like you Tolstoy reading isn't really <laughs> a thing. And, yeah, exactly. No. <laughs> probably a good idea (laughs) okay i see all right so this was two more years we are to eight now right eight yes kate is an eight-year-old yes what was kate doing as an eight-year-old where did you go next oh so for this next year i spent about six months in canberra and then the following six months we had moved to guangzhou china And the reason why I highlight there was six months in Canberra is because I'm in third grade and I remember going to three schools in third grade. Wow. Yes. Oh, in three different countries. Yes. So it'd be, I started third grade in Russia. 
I did six months of third grade in Australia and then I repeated like a part of sixth grade, uh, sorry, third, third grade. grade in China. In Guangzhou? Yes. Whoa. And you can remember this. I remember that because I just remember being like, I'm so weird. <laughs> <laughs> but also kind of showing off to people at the same time, like this is my third time doing third grade, you know? It's amazing because you're totally laughing about it right now. But I'm just wondering, were there any difficulties? We hear those stories as well, you know, just adjusting to this constant change. And this one's pretty intense. You know, you're young and three totally different places, too. You're going from like the far north to the far south and then up to Guangzhou, southern China and all in one year. <laughs> yeah, I mean, in retrospect, yeah, the, the whole moving around thing, it's not easy. It's rough. I'd say definitely took a toll on like my mental health, especially as a teenager. Mm. Um, but at the time, this is just what I knew. Mm -hmm. It was, I don't know, like the fourth time I had moved in my life. So I was like, oh, you know, All right, here, we go. here we go again. Mm. Okay. Like starting fresh, you know, I, I just thought everyone did this. And especially right. in international schools, I normally wouldn't be the only new girl. That's there might true. be another new student in the class or other students who had also moved from other countries. So I was just around other people. We talk about it. It's like, oh yeah, I lived here or I oh, lived yeah, there Moscow. before. Yeah. And you know, there's a funny story. There's um, actually a friend of mine. I'm still in touch with him today. Shout out to Matteo. If you ever Mateo. listen to this podcast. Mm -hmm. Matteo and I were actually classmates in second grade in Moscow. We have pictures together in Moscow. And we were also classmates in Guangzhou. No, that's Completely crazy. by chance, you know, and his mom works for Procter & Gamble. So okay. corporate, like he wasn't a diplomat or diplomat. He was a- The corporate brat. Yeah, corporate brat or whatever <laughs> they're called. Yeah. Yeah. And like, what are the chances Moscow transferred to Guangzhou? And then fast forward 10 years later, he came to Taiwan to study Mandarin. And I had just started my music career here. So we reconnected again, completely by chance oh, in Taiwan. Oh, that's crazy. You and Mateo are yeah. connected soulmates. Literally. Yeah, that's, that's crazy. That is insane. So... <laughs> Basically, there were a lot of Mateo, there are Mateos and right. other sort of like children's, you know, had their own version of, you know, moving from Moscow to Guangzhou would have been like moving from Austria to mm -hmm. Guangzhou or whatever. So it just felt kind of normal because we're all kind of in this together. And I think a lot of teachers are aware that, hey, these children are you know, moving, going around, you know, kind of behind. And that's why I had to re-repeat the second half of third grade because I had such an unstable first part of third grade that they made the decision for, you know what, Caitlin, just repeat the last semester of third grade. We're not going to put you in fourth grade. It's not a good idea. <laughs> wow. So, Mateo, was that a similar situation? That's why you guys ended up in the same grade? Yeah, same right. thing, same thing. But Mateo <laughs> came in grade four. Okay. So that same situation, but a year later. That is crazy. Where's Matteo from? Is that a Italian or a Spanish name? So he is just like me, completely messed up. <laughs> <laughs> 
He is half Italian, half Colombian. Okay. And he's currently based in San Francisco. Okay. And his specialty is he's doing a PhD in Italian and Chinese literature. Like the Whoa, comparison of two. That's hardcore. I know, but he's just as messed up as I am. Like <laughs> literally two different countries grew up all over the world. And, you know, now- he speaks Chinese fluently? Of course. That's yeah. his like- you know, he's got a PhD in it, oh, which is why he came to Taiwan because Chinese literature, Taiwan has the best collection. Yeah. Yes, yes. So he was coming here to do research and also like perfect his literary Chinese. <laughs> if I think that's the term. Right. So you saw Mateo back in Guangzhou in fourth grade. Yeah, it was crazy. <laughs> and you know what's even more ironic? So he literally moved right next door to us. <laughs> Like no in the way. compound, there's several compounds people can live in. Right. And he literally moved right next door. So we were best friends because when he moved, he knew me and right. we were living right across from each other. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah. What is this compound like? You can't visualize it. Oh, well, but what is it like? Do you remember? I have memories there. Okay. So compounds, generally speaking, no matter what country you go to, as long as they have compounds, mm. it's kind of like a gated sort of communal area. So a lot of families, especially families of like international companies or diplomats, they all live in this gated community. A lot of kids from the same school will usually go to these compounds because they're located close to international schools. Mm. And a lot of family members, you know, like moms and dads, you know, that they all kind of have events that are related and are English speaking, mm. you know, to allow them to connect and have friends. Because sometimes when you live in these countries, like, for example, Moscow, not exactly the most, you know, friendly country to just go out on the street and join community events. Right. So for more hardship countries and cities, they usually have compounds or cities that are not so safe. So I'd say with Guangzhou in early 2000s, not that it wasn't safe, but for there, it didn't really have a developed international community at the time. Right. And for people who don't speak Mandarin, so for example, Mateo's parents, they would live in the compound and like get to know the other families that lived in the compound. And there were a lot of events that would happen in the compound where they could get to know each other and do activities and whatnot. Because for example, Mateo's dad, who's Colombian mm. and he was a stay at home dad in the early 2000s, like not really many things he could do in Guangzhou at the time. Maybe right. it's changed since, but that's the sort of community that didn't have facilities or, you know, any sort of established community for him to join. Mm. So what grades were you in Guangzhou for? So I was there until the beginning of sixth grade. And that's when I start repeating grades again. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so what was that experience like? Repeating grades in Guangzhou? Well, actually, I ended up repeating seventh grade. So I did the first half of sixth grade. And then after Guangzhou, I moved back to Canberra. Of course. And I went straight into seventh grade. I had only done half <laughs> of sixth grade and went straight into seventh grade. Oh, wow. I see. Okay. <laughs> So how was that experience in Guangzhou? Do you have a lot of memories from this time? I remember you were telling me about running in Guangzhou. Yeah. Because if people don't know, it's, you know, on the Pearl River Delta. There, yes. It's a industrial city. I it was, was telling disgusting. you about my family and being from an industrial city in Japan. And you were like, oh, it reminds me of Guangzhou in my high school. Uh, not high school. Elementary school. Elementary school. And you were on a track team or something like this. Yeah. So, I mean... Back in elementary school, obviously there's lots of clubs and societies. I remember one that I was a part of was the running club. 
And our school was right next to the Pearl River. And we would run up and down the Pearl River. And I just remember being constantly sick all the damn time. <laughs> I, I was just- why. <laughs> Now Because you're know running, why. it's good exercise. Yeah. And to this day, I hate congee. And you oh, know, okay. normal <laughs> people like congee or they'll eat it when they're sick. But I hate congee because being in China and being sick all the damn time, I was oh. given congee like every week to kind of like, cause I would just be throwing up all the time, probably because from all the pollution and whatever, just like, mm -hmm. I was always sick and always eating congee that to this day, I'm like, nope, I don't want any congee. Cause it reminds me from back in the day. That's funny. Yeah. In Taiwan, that's like a, like I want some congee and you can get some nice like, rice. No. But you're like, that's not, no. No. That's, that's like torture for you. It is torture. <laughs> it brings back all that childhood trauma of being yeah. sick. <laughs> wow. So you were really like running in there. Yeah. Kind of like speeding up that process, sucking in that Probably. air. Who knows? Probably just <laughs> the industrialization blah. of a nation in your lungs. And I remember like <laughs> learning in elementary school about eclipses. And that was when mm. I first learned about it. And then I just remember like maybe like a week after waking up and the sky is dark and I'm like, wow, it's an eclipse. Ooh. And then later on telling my parents that we had an eclipse this morning. And then my dad being like, <laughs> nah, that was just the pollution. <laughs> That's just every day. Yeah, because my dad and I would wake up at 6 a.m. because he would go to the office and I would go to school. Mm. And so he knew that it was pollution because he was up <laughs> and he's like, no, that's that's just the pollution, dear. You know, all the facts. Factories. <laughs> That's pretty funny. That would look like an eclipse. Yeah, because it's supposed to be daylight, but right. it's literally dark. <laughs> it's eclipsed. Right. Yeah, but it's actually pollution and it doesn't like clean up until about midday. Wow. It's, it was so gross. It's, so you remember ugh. that? You remember the pollution? So much pollution, so much dirt, just gross all around, constantly being sick. Yeah, just not the best time. Yeah, and I know China has changed since then. So, like, don't get me wrong. China, you're still a cool place. I will still go and visit you today. So if anyone is looking to employ me in China, <laughs> I will exactly. still go. I know things have changed since then. But in the early 2000s, in industrialized southern China, that was the environment we were working with. For sure. I mean, a lot of southern China, especially that industrial area, is still pretty bad. I was just speaking with some friends who have some businesses out there. And yeah. The husband who's American is like, I do not like going back there. And he also said a major reason for him is that it's just way too humid. It's very muggy and it's very buggy, as they said. There's like a lot of mosquitoes and things like this. So not just the pollution, but. Oh, that's not fun. But yeah, just overall, not the nicest environment to live in, like in terms of the weather, the temperature, the pollution but not everywhere is great i mean russia had its own issues too mm -hmm. and so does well the next country i live in okay so before that maybe let's try what is your best beautiful memory from guangzhou learning origami <laughs> <laughs> learning a uh, japanese art in yeah guangzhou. <laughs> i remember like you know having origami class and just like loving it, it was so much fun do you still have that skill now i don't think so i mean i crane could Oh, it's been a while, but I remember I memorized like how to make, you know, 20 different types of origami. And that was really, really fun. You like folding paper. Yeah. Well, actually, if you think about it, that's like one of the only forms of art that someone with aphantasia could really enjoy because there's no visual element to it. It's all through it's touch. It's all like tactile. 
Yeah, it's all through right. through touch and like just like a to do or an instruction list. Yeah, right. You can just follow the words, touch yeah. it, and just do it. And then you have something you create it, which is visual. Yes, in the end. Yes, so oh, it makes sense. Like thinking about my childhood, I'm like, oh, <laughs> that's why I love that. Oh, that's very interesting. Okay, yeah. so yes, you just hinted at it. What is the next country after going back right to Australia for another six months? I guess we were there for one year. Okay. And that one year was to prepare to go to the next country, which is Saudi Arabia. Wow. So you needed a one year preparation for Saudi. Pretty much. So I remember we had just moved back to Australia and I remember the day dad got the call where they're like, you are moving to Saudi Arabia and dad just being extremely shocked because A, he just came back from posting and typically once you've been posted two times in a row, there's a tradition that you stay for a little while before you go on your next posting. Okay. But on top of that, it's like Saudi Arabia was completely out of his expertise and mm. completely out of sort of like the areas that he wanted to get posted, you know? Mm. So I remember him just being completely shocked and we were supposed to have like a dad daughter day. It got completely ruined by the Department of Foreign Affairs. Oh, wow. <laughs> okay. What happens during this year? I mean, for your dad, right? So is he learning Arabic and kind of studying, you know, studying and preparing for Saudi Arabia? I think he's doing a little bit of preparation. I don't think he was learning any Arabic because he doesn't speak any Arabic today, but definitely like learning about the region, learning about Australia's stance on that, you know, working closely with the uh, Australian desk that looks after the Middle East. So slowly pivoting his expertise from China and Russia to the Middle East. Wow, super interesting. But yeah, I mean, Saudi is a very powerful country and often finds itself between the US and Russia so and China. So it actually makes a lot of sense. And I think kind of career-wise, it's probably in the end or in retrospect, it might've been very valuable for your father. Definitely. I remember talking to my dad and he talked so much about the struggle of like trying to decide whether or not to go to Saudi Arabia. Mm. And then he said, career-wise, it was a huge promotion because prior to going to Saudi Arabia, the highest level that he had achieved was consul general, which is like the head of the embassy in a city, but not necessarily the capital city. Okay. And going to Saudi Arabia mean he would be an ambassador, Ooh. which is like a huge promotion because mm -hmm. being an ambassador, it means that the governor general in other words, the queen, because we are a Commonwealth country in Australia, has granted you the ambassador title. Right. And also Saudi Arabia is a G20 country, a very powerful country, mm -hmm. and also a very important nation for Australia to be aligned with purely for oil needs and also just being a country that every country wants a part of. So for him, that was huge promotion, but it just wasn't his specific expertise. But however, I remember him, he was saying that the Department of Foreign Affairs thought he was a great fit because, you know, obviously you said that Saudi Arabia exactly. finds itself between China and Russia. So, you know, those are two areas of expertise he already had. Mm -hmm. um, on top of that, he said he was interested in going to like India and Pakistan. So they thought, hey, you want to be in the Middle East. <laughs> but he really meant, you know, like right. India rather than the Middle East. Right, exactly. But they thought he was interested in the Middle East based on him That's saying funny. he would like to go there. Um, but also he had a family and 
in Saudi Arabia, that's like a big part of the culture there. It's a very family-oriented place. I mean, mm-hmm. for, for two reasons. One reason is because it's, you know, there's no alcohol, there's no sort of naughty nightlife or, mm-hmm. you know, at least not publicly Pub- speaking. Exactly. So as a, as, as a whole, everything becomes family-friendly there. Yes. And um, another culture is that yeah, part of Saudi Arabia is that people have multiple wives, which means they have multiple children and, you know, families will be like eight, nine kids and you'll have kids from, you know, teenagers all the way to like babies all in one family. And my dad had me, who at the time was like 12 and my brother, who was three. So it was like perfect. It's like, ah, you know, <laughs> he's a perfect got, family place. It's <laughs> a perfect family place. And he's like the perfect type of like, you know, family to come across because he can relate with all these other, you know, uh, Saudi Arabians or Arabs who had multiple wives and multiple children across different ages. So it was like a That's great- That's how they sold him. Yeah, it was like, oh, it's great. You know, he can connect with the older ones and the younger ones. Did they get him another wife? No, 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 no. <laughs> <laughs> but that's not legal in that's Australia. That's not, okay. That wasn't part of the deal. Okay, so did you go to Riyadh? That is exactly where we were posted. We were posted in Riyadh, the capital city of Saudi Arabia. Yes. And that's where we're based for three and a half years. From eighth grade. From seventh grade, because I had to redo. Oh, that's where you had to redo. Yeah, the redo seventh. another. <laughs> it's becoming a trend here. <laughs> wow! So you started. Is that basically middle school up until the beginning of high school, or how did yeah. it work there in Saudi? So I started in seventh grade and I left in tenth grade. So I finished tenth grade. Okay. So I was there for three and a half years. That's super interesting because yeah. for most people, most people who, you know, live in one place, that time period is really important, right? Seventh to 10th grade is, those are your real formative years. You're changing kind of physically as well. This is like puberty and you're starting to understand not only your own body, but its relation to the world, right? That's the high school time. So this is a very interesting place to have to experience that. Well, I think in one regard, it's almost good that we were there the whole time for that transition. Mm. Uh, But it was extremely hard living and moving. Okay, maybe not living. I got used to it and I quite enjoyed it for my last year and a half in Saudi Arabia. But the first two years of living in Saudi Arabia was absolutely awful for Mm. me. And it has nothing really specific to do with the country. It was just like, it was just so stressful for me because obviously moving country, moving, you know, changing school, moving from one system to another, having to redo it again. Like that's already hard, you know, moving house, all of that. That's already hard for like a teenager, let alone all the things that are going on with puberty and all the hormonal changes and physical and body changes. Mm -hmm. But also just like the culture shock was just so huge for me. I think I moved there when I was 12. I think that's at the point where I am really conscious about everything that's going on. I understand like you can't fake things or Mm. hide things like I know that Santa isn't real I know that Tooth Fairy isn't real when I'm 12 you know so I know if you're just bullshitting something at the Mm. age of 12 and I think for me it's like a big smack in the face and Saudi Arabia was just so hard to move to because I was going there as like I could still consider myself like a child or at least like you know um under the age of 18 let's just say that I still consider myself a a minor Mm -hmm. 
But moving there to Saudi Arabia, I was considered a woman because physically I had started developing as a woman. And that's when you're considered a woman in the eyes of Saudi Arabia. So people started treating me as a woman. And yeah, you're probably like, ah, it probably isn't that bad to like being treated like an adult already. But being treated as a woman in Saudi Arabia is being treated like a piece of furniture. Like how they treat women and men, especially back in the 2000s, you know, men have all the authority, all the respect, all the power, everything that a man wants, you know, a man says is, you know, granted. And you may be in the wrong as a man, no matter how loud you scream, shout, whatever, a woman is always wrong. Mm -hmm. So for example, in Saudi Arabia, a man and woman can get a divorce purely because the man is beating his wife. The man will get custody of the children because he's a man. The uh, woman will be, you know, she wasn't there to support you know, make the man happy. That's why he beat her. And, you know, she's the one that wanted divorce. She's the one that ruined the the marriage. Like everything will be saying that the wife is wrong. When we know the man is at fault for beating his wife, setting up a, a family where it's not a good environment and it, there's a lot of domestic violence. But that's just how Saudi Arabia is. So I came in straight away to that <laughs> As a 12-year-old. Yeah, and I was like, oh, like, I am not prepared for this at all. Like, like I do not, I just remember, like, my first memory of feeling that misogynistic patriarchy was within the first two weeks of living in Saudi Arabia. We were living in a serviced hotel apartment, and my brother is three, and I'm 12. I remember my mom being like, hey, there's, like, a local library in this uh complex go and check it out uh we had a helper who was looking after my brother so she's in her 40s a mid-age woman anyway I remember we're walking to the library and the library us walking there is in a corridor and that's public and the library you have to like walk in for for you to be considered in the library anyway my brother's three runs into the library and you know we me and the helper stroll casually behind him and we're just taking our time he's like oh you know he's in the library he'll be fine we get to the library and as soon as we get to the library a guy comes out and says sorry ma'am no women allowed in the library like men only you're gonna have to wait outside and we're like, oh, but, you know, the my brother or like, you know, the, the child, he's only three. He's already inside. We have to go and collect him. Right. Sorry, ma'am. No women allowed. You're just going to have to wait for him to come outside. Inshallah. Inshallah. So we're standing outside and it's hot. It's like 50 degrees, you know, like 50 degrees Celsius. We're just standing right. outside and it, he rejects me. I mean, yeah, I'm 12. Fine. I'm like a kid. Right. But- He rejects the 40-year-old middle-aged woman from going to collect the child. Right, but that three-year-old is totally free. He's he's fine. He's he's a man. He's a man. man. He wants to go in the library. He can spend as much time as he likes in the library. So we're just standing outside waiting for him to come out. No way. Yeah, and there was nothing we could do. Because inshallah, so God willing, the guy, like the the child will come out when he feels like it. But that's just how the culture is. And that was my first, like, just my first, like, memory and exposure to what life in Saudi Arabia would be like. That's, and that's a crazy story. And, yep. and your brother was three. I mean, yep. that's really young. 
Yeah, three <laughs> years old. But he had way more power than the two of us together. Right. I know. I know. That's quite shocking for people who don't understand. But yeah, it's quite common for women to have to get permission from their like brother to be able to go outside, you know, and do stuff. So definitely. Yeah. And there are moments I remember like I would just take my brother with me, who, by the way, is nine years younger than me, just to go into right. like a Starbucks or something just so I could show them I had male permission right. from exactly. a relative exactly. to go to get a drink <laughs> or oh, like McDonald's wow. or whatever. It's like, this is my brother. And he and I were on the same ID card as my mom. <laughs> So oh. like, cause women and children are just are like, all together. Just are all, all together. On one card, <laughs> one ID card. So imagine having an ARC and it's <laughs> like you and your siblings and your mom are all on the same ARC. Right. My mom would be on mine. <laughs> mom, yeah. you can come, you can come on mine. Yeah. It was just so ridiculous. But sometimes it would be like, okay, I would have like, the ID card, which has my brother and my mom and me in one. And I'd be like, yeah, like- This is my guardian This is look. my guardian look. And they'd be like, yes, yes, ma'am. Okay. Like, yeah. And it's like this child, like- Do you know if your brother remembers that library story? I don't think so. I have no idea. I never asked him, but- I know. And what happened to him in the library? <laughs> He's probably crying his head off like totally lost, right? And I remember he did come out like a little later because no one came in. He didn't know. Right. Also, that library was like a library of just like Korans. So it wasn't right. exactly like child friendly. <laughs> no way. This is this is in the middle of Riyadh. Yeah. Wow. That's an amazing memory. Welcome. Yeah. Yes. Salaam Welcome alaikum. to Saudi Welcome Arabia. Welcome to Saudi Arabia. Oh. <laughs> Oh my goodness. That's a great memory. So did you get a chance to travel around Saudi Arabia? Well, actually we did. So hmm. tourism at the time wasn't really a thing. Um, that time was a pretty tense time in Saudi Arabia, it, in the Middle East. Definitely. Generally. Well, obviously we have terrorism. That's one thing. But yeah. generally speaking, just not an open society. Tourism mm -hmm. is just not really on its books as mm -hmm. a country. It's just definitely. not a concept. You know, yep. we spend all our time worshiping the Quran. That's exactly the concept that most citizens had there, you know, the mm -hmm. average person. Uh, so travel for leisure? No. Travel, you know, to go and worship that Oh, right, rock. to Makkah. It, it, yes, exactly. Totally fine. That's okay. Yeah, everyone did that. Actually, you have to do that. Yes. <laughs> You're obliged, yes. <laughs> you know, Hajj, Hajj yes. You know, yes. Um, travel for fun? No. Uh, but a little bit later on in my dad's uh, diplomacy, you know, time there in Saudi Arabia, we did have the opportunity to visit like a few of the deserts. And also I, I forgot what they're called, but you know how like in Jordan there's Petra. Mm. So there are miniature versions of Petra in the desert in Saudi Arabia. So Ooh, we did get to cool. visit that, which was really, really awesome. Um, and then with school, I did get to visit like a couple of the other international schools for like exchanges, but that was the extent of travel in Saudi Arabia. It's not a very right. travel it's friendly not like country. Going to Hualien or Kunding. No, not at all. But we did travel as a family to nearby Middle Eastern countries with my dad because we are Australian and we had a bit of diplomatic immunity, so we can travel. 
Mm. And also my parents just wanted to get out. <laughs> it's not that fun in Saudi Arabia. I mean, that's, that's like Saudis, right? Yeah. They, a lot of them just want to get out. Yeah. Go somewhere else. Exactly. Go anywhere in the Middle East. I have a lot of friends. When I went to Tunisia, my friends anyways really hated Saudis because they basically go to Tunisia, another, you know, kind of Arab country. But Tunisia is kind of famously one of the most liberal, but they were very unhappy because they would go there and just go crazy because it's like just being led out of a zoo. You know, it's like being trapped for so long and then they just let it all out. Oh, I feel like it would be any place with a lot of Saudi Arabians. They would probably say the same thing. Wow. So where did you go in the Middle East? Oh, well, with my father, we went to Bahrain, Kuwait, Oman. Uh, those are some of the countries in the Middle East. Uh, I went to Egypt. I also went to Jordan. Where else did I go? I'm running out of country. Syria. Uh, what other Middle Eastern countries? Iraq. Oh, we didn't go there. Okay. <laughs> that's, that's a little bit too dangerous. Right. <laughs> I'm still alive right now. So didn't go to Iraq. I uh, remember we also went to a few European countries, uh, mm. like um, Italy, France, Spain, because that's actually not that far from Saudi Arabia, thinking about it. Uh, went to Turkey. Mm. Yeah. The UK. So we all went there just trying to travel, get around. Get out as much as you can. Yeah. Yeah. And then back in Saudi, you were at the compound. Yes. Of course. Well, not even in the compound. We were in the embassy because it's not that safe to live in the compound because the compounds were bombed from time to time. That's true. So we lived in the embassy where it's very secure and all the embassies were congregated in an area called diplomatic quarter. So all the embassies in the diplomatic quarter. Yeah. You had to get through the security of the diplomatic quarter and then you have to go to another round of security per embassy. So it was very, very secure. Very secure. So like three years you were living in the embassy in Riyadh. Oh, yeah. Wow. And what about the school? Uh, I went to the American International School. So we would have to travel out of the embassy, out of the diplomatic quarter, drive for about 45 minutes, and then going to school. I, You know, it's so funny because I just think everyone had this experience. So when I explained the story, I was like, yeah, it's like every day, but it's not. So the average day would be I would leave the embassy, we would have the car scanned to make sure that nothing was planted in the car overnight. Of course, that probably wouldn't happen given the embassy, but they would check the car to show that it was safe. Clean, yeah. Clean, leaving the embassy. So the, the security guards would do that at the Australian embassy. Then we would drive through the diplomatic quarter, go through the military barricades that are surrounding the diplomatic quarter. Of course, they would take note of what time we would leaving and that were from the Australian embassy. We would drive to the school and we'd go through the first round of security, which they would check for bombs and check the identification cards of who was in the car and to make sure that the people in the car are people, you know, that should be going to the school. Uh, So like either students or parents, you know, and of course, anyone that was in the family was registered. So even if like the parents, they don't technically go to the school, but they're registered. So at mm. least like they will check with the they database. Mm-hmm. We'd go through that checkpoint. And if you had passed a further checkpoint because cars and specific drivers and like family members are then verified with a special identity card every school year. So if we had passed that, we would go through to the second checkpoint. But if you didn't, you would be dropped off at the first checkpoint. Then you'd have to go through like airport security style. Uh, So let's pretend I I didn't make it through to the second 
checkpoint. Right. So we'd get dropped off, airport security. Take off your shoes, your belts, all of that, everything. Scan through the scanner and then- No you, water bottles? Uh, you, you could bring a water <laughs> okay, bottle, yeah. Okay. <laughs> they would scan and then everything is okay. <laughs> and then obviously they check to make sure you're a student or like why you're there, you know. And then we would literally have to walk a kilometer from that checkpoint to the school. No way. Yeah, they would call this the mile. The and mile. <laughs> the green mile. We'd have to walk a kilometer because they would have at least that, you know, 15 minutes in case for some reason. Right, if you just let off the bomb. Yeah, or like <laughs> they let in somebody that wasn't supposed to be let in. Right, There's 15 right, right. minutes for the school to be shut down and for them to like have security and army come through. That's why it's called the mile. So if I didn't have my pass that day, I would have to walk a kilometer. No way, <laughs> with like snipers trained on you and in like 50 degree yeah. heat. Yeah. That is insane. So how many times did you have to do that? Not very often. I would sometimes have to do that in leaving school because the person picking me up may not have access to the second checkpoint. But going to school, I was always coming from the embassy. So it was very secure because we have literally time markers of us and right. evidence of leaving the embassy, leaving the diplomatic quarter. And like, they would know that we have like the number plate, uh, Australian embassy plate. Right. And we were registered and would have the IDs so that we can go through the second checkpoint. But anyway, let me finish talking about that mile. So we'd finish walking the mile. And at the end of the mile, there'll be another security checkpoint. And if you pass that checkpoint, then you can go into the school. It's <laughs> <laughs> not even over. Oh my goodness. Yes, yes. That's if you don't have your proper ID card. But if you have your ID card, you'll go through another checkpoint. So they scan yet again. Wow. And then they let you drive into the back gate of the school where you can be dropped off and then you just walk in. So that's like you get checked off, but you didn't have to walk the mile. Like you have your second checkpoint, but they check the car and everything and you get no dropped off way. at the back. And <laughs> after all that, you can start school. Yes. So I left for school really early in the morning, like 6.30 in the morning. Just to go through the protocol. Yeah. Every single day. Yeah. Because we'd have to drive really far and then all the protocol. And then have to go through it on the way back too. Yeah. Yeah. But the reverse would be the checkpoints would be happening at the diplomatic quarter and then at the embassy. Oh, I see. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> oh my goodness. How big was this school? Oh, um, I think like a thousand students or so. Really? Yeah, because it's like from K to 12. Okay. Yeah. I see. I see. That is crazy. Oh, yeah. How was education? Oh, interesting. <laughs> well, like, obviously, it's an American international school. So there's like a certain level of accreditation that they have to go through. They offered the international baccalaureate. So it was like, you know, a good enough school. It had an American curriculum. Mm. But having classmates from the Middle East and also from Saudi Arabia was quite tough because... We had princes and princesses in the school with us and they were quite entitled and also not very studious because that's just how they grew up. You know, yeah. they were given whatever they wanted. They didn't want to work hard. If they threw a hissy fit, mom and dad, AKA, you know, like yeah, prince, prince and prince, blah, princess, blah, 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 would come knocking at the door. The school would get in trouble. So you just let that tantrum happen in the middle of the class. You would literally have like rich kids who weren't necessarily like princes and princesses, but like, you right. know. Just like moguls. Yeah. Oil moguls they would try and like, yeah, they would try and like 
buy out the teachers. I remember them trying to give them like iPods and like oh, laptops you saw and all things. The bribery. Yeah, but obviously the, the teachers would not accept that. Right. But, but yeah, that that was at least in front of you. <laughs> yeah, at least not in front of me. But they they, they would try. They would really try, yeah. No way. So you're seeing all this as like a young girl yeah. maturing into the world. Pretty much. It was weird. <laughs> really weird. And like we would love, hate the princes and princesses. We would hate them because it's like they're holding up the class. They're just awful people. Just very spoiled. But we'd also love them because they would be the one giving treats and bringing them <laughs> exactly. things. And if we ever wanted to go out as a class Ooh. or like hold a party, the only time that we could do it is either at one of their palaces yeah. or if they take us to like a restaurant because they're a prince, they have like this prince or princess immunity and they can just like shut down the whole venue and it's just ours. And there won't be any like religious police knocking on the door saying that non-married young men and women are, are, are hanging out because it's it's the prince. Yeah, they own the police. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Yeah, so we love hate them. We love them because we could live a normal life because of them, but we hated them because they're just shit people. Whoa. So what is your most memorable field trip with a prince or princess? <laughs> I mean, they weren't really that memorable, but like just getting to go to like Outback Steakhouse oh, or just I like see. getting to go to TGI Fridays, you know. And you'd have the whole TGI Friday. Yeah. And I remember getting my first iPod from a prince. Okay. Because he liked me. And he wanted to like ask me out. So he gave me an iPod. <laughs> and that was like back when iPods were like a were new super thing. Super valuable. Yeah. Yeah. So that was kind of cool. I know. I rejected him. You did? Yeah. But you could be a princess right now. Uh, nah. <laughs> nah. But that was cool. But that's kind of like the dynamic you had there. Okay. Any other memories from Saudi Arabia? Oh, well, I remember like. We would host a lot of events at the embassy. So that was one of the only ways to do diplomacy was through inviting people. And the embassy is one of those places where we have diplomatic immunity. So living at the embassy, Australian law applied. So we had alcohol oh. and we had a bar and we would do things called community nights where we would host the Australian community to come and people could just buy alcohol and drink alcohol freely. Aussie, Aussie, Aussie. Yeah, oi, oi, oi. Yeah, it was very dangerous. So I remember the community nights. I also remember the diplomatic events that we would hold and just like a lot of people getting drunk. Like, yeah. because it would be- That's like the only place. Yeah, pretty much. So I was just exposed to people getting drunk all the time <laughs> at home. All these like very distinguished people just yeah. like hammered. Yeah. <laughs> but that's also where I started my performance career because I would perform for all these people that would come to the embassy. No way. Yeah, that's, that's where I cut that's my teeth. That's where you cut your teeth. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. To all these drunk, distinguished people. It was amazing. Saudi Arabia. It's perfect audience. They have yes, no idea what I'm doing. They have no idea. They love you. They yeah. love the environment. Exactly. And they're, they're forced so to sit through whatever I was to. doing. Exactly. It's ambassador's daughter. Exactly. You better pay attention. You better applaud <laughs> if you want that wine. Exactly. Wow. Fun times at the embassy. Lots of fun times. That's the only place you can do that in Saudi Arabia, right? At these international hotels and diplomatic quarters. Otherwise, you'd have to very secretly do them privately. That's it. And it's hard to get all that alcohol. Yeah, you're really, I know. Yeah. 
Yeah. In fact, our um, one of the staff members that worked at the embassy, like uh, one of the domestic staff members, later on, he got arrested because he was like- Smuggling. Smuggling <laughs> this alcohol that we would import <laughs> for the embassy and he was selling it on the black market. I remember that. And I was like, oh, what? That's a pretty good side hustle. It is a great <laughs> side hustle for him. But yeah, I'm not sure what punishment he received that's, for that, but that yeah, would have been a really bad punishment. Some consequences. Yeah. Oh, goodness. Yeah, because my Saudi friends in the east, like in Tamam, the Shia area, they all just go across the bridge to Bahrain and yeah. just go crazy and then just come back across the bridge and be regular good Saudis again. We would literally do that, but just to like eat pork. Oh, and buy like just like yeah, bacon. if you're like fiending for for some bacon. Yeah, I remember yeah, my how do, you do that. My family, we would literally go to Bahrain for a weekend. We would drive the car all the way. <laughs> That's to Bahrain. far, actually, from Riyadh. You have to go all the way. Yeah, across. yeah, but we would do that for <laughs> bacon. And actually, I don't think we drove it. I think the driver would drive us. We would fly to Bahrain, and then we would pack the car like the entire boot with just like pork <laughs> and especially mom's Taiwanese remember so oh, mom wants her Chinese like Chinese Jew yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Chinese are crazy about the Jew <laughs> yeah 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 yeah. so like we would be pack the entire like boot of the car with pork that is so funny it's and so like true. and then put our suitcases like on the top or whatever just to make it seem like oh you know the <laughs> ambassador have extra suitcase that they couldn't put in the whatever like the flight <laughs> and the driver would just drive it all the way back to Riyadh. No way. And we'd have bacon. That's amazing. For like a whole month. <laughs> and mom would have her Taiwanese food. Exactly. And be able to cook some like whatever she wants. Oh yeah. She loved it. But your your dad also has diplomatic immunity. So he can totally, he can smuggle. That's true. But it's like <laughs> not a good look to be caught yeah. with like a suitcase of, of bacon. <laughs> Of like, yeah, live carcasses. So of course there's immunity to have like a suitcase of bacon in your car. (laughs) But like having the ambassador with a suitcase of bacon and it's like through airport security. It's just not good PR. No. Yeah. Even if he can. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, wow. Okay. So we are getting towards the end of your formative years here, but there's a still a couple years left, it seems like, before you actually graduate from high school, right? Yeah. Yeah, so you do not graduate from high school in Saudi, Saudi Arabia. No, I do not. I finished 10th grade and I spent 11th and 12th grade in the beautiful island of Formosa. Oh, in Formosa, I've heard of that place. It's an amazing place. Otherwise known as Republic of China, otherwise known as Taiwan. Exactly. Okay. So your dad was actually posted in Taiwan. Yeah. He was posted here as the representative. It was kind of like his reward for doing Saudi Arabia. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Because yeah. he asked to so come the here hardship after. Bonus. Yes. Right, 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 right. Mom is Taiwanese. So he. It's like, let me finish my career over there. Yeah. And like, my wife wants to, you know, regain some of her, you know, earn some of those years back. Because she was obviously didn't get to do anything for three and a half years except for just live in the embassy. And luckily she had my brother to look after that gave her something to do. You know, Mm. he's three. So between three and five, he's still a toddler. So she just like homeschooled him and, you know. And she gets all the pork she needs. Yes. In Taiwan. To cook whatever she wanted. Exactly. Oh, that's awesome. So this was your father's last official posting? Yes. Okay. 
was Taiwan. Is the Australian representative. Yes, so kind of like the ambassador to Taiwan if there was if there formal was some recognition. Kind of, right, exactly. Okay, wow, that's interesting. So when did you enter Taiwan? What grade were you? How old were you? I was 16 and I entered at grade 11 and I went to Taipei American School. So that's where I get that diplomat status. <laughs> yes, you fully deserve it now. Yes, I did. TAS. I went to TAS. Exactly. So let's talk about TAS. What is TAS like? Taipei American School. Okay, so the reputation that TAS has is exactly how it is. <laughs> <laughs> what is that? It's For those who do not know. It's a lot of rich, bratty kids that are American Taiwanese that come from very well-to-do families and their parents just want their children to go to a very fancy American college. So they send them to Taipei American School, an extremely expensive school with the best facilities you can possibly imagine. It's with, definitely the best in Taiwan. There's no college that looks like TAS. Yeah, <laughs> TAS is... Like they had a robotics program when I was there. Like that was, you know, 2011, like robotics at that time. Mm -hmm. uh, they had an amazing music program, which to my benefit, I got to use and Ooh. that got to cultivate me into the musician that I am today. But most schools like, you know, in the world, public schools and even private schools, like in Saudi Arabia, we did not have a music program like that, despite having princes and princesses and moguls, mm. you know, like- the music program, you know, just overflowing with money and support. And just TAS is just a place with great facilities, great buildings, teachers with amazing qualifications that could be college professors teaching us. So honestly, yeah, we were very, very spoiled. But um, it was quite a difficult time for me because I was coming in with a reverse culture shock. Right. I It is a culture shock in its own rights. Yes, I'm moving from Saudi Arabia to Taiwan, but it was very reverse culture shock because I was going to Saudi Arabia and like coming from Saudi Arabia, I was just kind of acting like a second class citizen and I'm moving to Taiwan and I'm going to TAS where they're like, where you're I'm like, like at the top of the yeah, society. Yeah, I'm at the top of society and people giving me a platform and a voice and an opportunity. And I'm just like struggling to figure out why, mm. you know, and trying to just like step on my own two feet to allow myself to really voice my opinion and be who I am and be a young woman because I was just so, so used to being told to shut up and be small and not exist because I'm a woman. And then also academically, I was so behind. And then, you know, I was starting International Baccalaureate, which is very challenging program, but especially for someone who is, you know, very behind in school mm. and, you know, just trying to come to terms with like my half Taiwanese identity, but being so disconnected from Taiwan at the same time. Like, right. I just hated it. I was like, oh, this is really, really tough. Like, I was just disowning my Taiwanese culture because I just was so disconnected from it. I just right. felt ashamed to say that I was part Taiwanese. Right, right, right. You know? So just as a whole, it was, yeah, I was just like going through a lot of like identity crisis, oh but just goodness. trying to fit in and do the best that I can. And in a way, like a lot of people are surprised that I went to TAS because I don't fit into the mold of being TAS kid. And it's true because I was, you know, unpacking all of that and just not even like, okay, my background, yes, I come from like a good family, but I don't come from like this super wealthy family that owns this building or owns this like international company. You know, I come from a diplomatic family. 
But I was just trying to fit in and just trying to make friends and trying to pass class, to be honest. Mm. So I didn't really fall into that bratty life or that sort of TAS lifestyle of going for brunch or whatever, like wearing fancy, expensive shorts or showing up in some fancy car because <laughs> that's just not the background I came from and not the lifestyle I was trying to do because I was just trying to survive. So when you entered TAS, how was your Chinese at this point? Non-existent. Oh, really? Like I had some of those, you know, memories of mum trying to teach me Mandarin back when I was in Australia. Right. And in China, obviously was exposed to Mandarin and had Mandarin class, you know, because like they always have a second language class in elementary school. So that's, I mean, just living in China, that's what it was. But after China, I was not exposed to Mandarin because I was in Saudi Arabia. So why would I know any Mandarin? And I just had that rudimentary exposure, you know, back in the day. Right. That was about it. And then when I was at TAS, I was just trying to pass class. And because I'd been studying French the entire time in my education, so I just did French class. Okay. Yeah, it's just not very, I was not very Taiwanese at all. Huh. What percent of your classmates were like of Taiwanese blood at oh. TAS? Ninety-five percent, you know, like their parents are Taiwanese. There was a lot of mixed race kids too, also mm -hmm. half Taiwanese. Mm -hmm. So I would say like at least ninety percent had Taiwanese blood, and me included. Right. How about their Chinese skills overall at TAS? Oh, very, very good. Like okay. most people spoke Mandarin. Like there would be a policy of like no speaking Mandarin in class like to that. discourage that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I've met quite a few TAS kids who don't speak Mandarin either. They're just fluent in English. But if you are, you can get by there. Oh, yeah. Easily. You don't I mean, need to know a drop of Chinese. Right. And that was me. <laughs> I see. Okay. So how is your Chinese now? Oh, fantastic. But okay. it has nothing to do with TAS. <laughs> or that time. Despite TAS. Yeah, nothing to do with TAS <laughs> or that time period. I see. So yeah. this all came after that. Yeah, this is, you know, you got to fast forward to the second podcast if you want to know. Exactly, to figure out that part. Okay, so this is TAS. And you graduated from TAS. I know. And it's, it's so ironic because, like, I'm the worst TAS student in the fact that like, I don't really identify with being someone that went to TAS. I'm not like the stereotypical TAS student. A lot of people that went to TAS, unless they're in my grade, don't actually know who I am and don't actually believe that I went to TAS. <laughs> um, but it has come in handy because a lot of TAS students come from the elite here in Taiwan. And there have been times I've done gigs and they'll be like elite with an elite group. And that group of people, they would have been very rude to me knowing that I was like a hired musician or host. Oh, okay. But when they found out I was from TAS or they recognized me, like somebody knows that I was their daughter's friend or whatever who went to TAS, they immediately like change their behavior. Oh my goodness. Yeah, yeah. So I have to say it <laughs> has helped me out there. And like maybe one day that TAS connection might help in business or something. So I'm, like I said, it's a privilege really. Mm, it's right. a privilege. I, I have to recognize that I do come from a good background and that it's a fortune to have been connected with these people because you never know when this might come back to help me. That's so, it, that's awesome in some way, but it's so sad, right? Yeah. Oh, you went to TS? Okay, now we will listen to you and respect you. Yeah. <laughs> but otherwise, no. 
Or like I get gigs because like, oh, it's a group of like TAS moms like organizing something and then they just like pick me because I have a TAS connection. Oh, wow. You know, but I may not be the best musician suited for the job or best host for the job. It's just TAS connection, TAS community. Yeah, it's Taiwan. Yep, there you go. But (laughs) hey, that happens all around the world. So I'm not going to say it's just a unique Taiwan thing. Right. You know, there's always favoritism and like communities picking elite community over other regular hardworking people. Mm, Definitely. So what is your best memory from TAS, this experience? I would say the jazz band because mm. TAS is the reason why I sing jazz today. But like I said, you got to have to tune in to the next podcast exactly. to find out why. Wow. So this this was at this jazz band at yeah. TAS. This is the beginning. That is the beginning. And that is the beginning of the next podcast. That is a perfect segue because Ben, Benjamin Holt from episode 30 will be here in any minute. So we are going to go out and have a little late night meal with Ben. Talk we jazz. Better. I'm hungry. Exactly. I'm starving. <laughs> Talking is exhausting. <laughs> this diplomatic life, this diplomat life, it's not easy. It's not easy. It ain't easy. easy. It ain't easy being me. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> okay. Awesome. So yes, please make sure to tune in for that next follow-up one and we'll go deep. Maybe we'll even have a special guest or two to make it really jazzy. Definitely. And of course, if you have any questions or any comments related to anything that we've spoken about in the podcast that you'd like me to elaborate on next episode, you know, feel free. I'm more than welcome to talk about being aphantasia or or living in Saudi Arabia or just anything really. So please bring those questions, comments. Amazing. Bring it. I'm all for it. That's awesome. Yes. Please send your comments here. You can also send them to Kate and find her at ICRT. She is on the radio Monday through Friday, 1 to 4 p.m. Yes, that's correct. Sunday, 6 to 8 p.m. That is correct. And I will be there soon as well. We'll talk definitely, more. Definitely, definitely. Yes, we'll do that and you guys can let us know. Yeah. Keep this conversation going. And yeah, we'll try to follow up as well next time. Or be a part of the conversation. Exactly. Come talk to us. We like talking. We want to hear from you. We definitely do. We can't shut up. We cannot. Except when there's food in our mouth. So let's exactly. go get some food yeah, we are so we get can shut up. Let's do it, girl. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. Thank you so much for coming in here. I know you were busy. She is a superstar. She had a crazy uh, story getting here this evening, but she made it. Thank goodness. Luckily for us. So thank you very much for coming out here and sharing those really amazing stories with us. And I look forward to doing it again soon. And thank you so much for giving me the opportunity to be the guest. I'm almost never the guest. I know. So thank you. Exactly. Your stories need to be heard. They're amazing. Thank you. Yeah. Awesome. All right. So thank you very much for listening, everyone. Have a wonderful night. See you next time. Yes. Thank you.